0: Welcome, everyone, to 1001's Best of Jack London. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. Here you'll find the most listened-to Jack London stories from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, as well as brand-new narrations from me. Today's story, A Daughter of the Aurora, is not only a listener favorite, but one of my top favorites as well. It had to have been inspired by one of the many tales London picked up during his time in the Yukon, Any time you have two men fighting for the affections of one woman, you have a story. And Jack London nails it here. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This one, a great classic short story from Jack London, titled, A Daughter of Aurora. Joy Molyneux was half French, half Indian, and all-knowing when it came to winning her man. She had one in mind but wasn't quite sure if he could meet her standards, so she arranged a test of steel to see if he had what it takes. And now, our story by Jack London, a daughter of Aurora in its entirety. You what you call lazy mans, you lazy mans would desire me to have for wife. It is not good. Never, no, never will lazy mans my husband be. Thus, Joy Molinos spoke her mind to Jack Harrington, even as she had spoken it, but more tritely and in his own tongue, to Louis Savoy the previous night. Listen, Joy, no, no, why, moose, I listen to lazy man's. It is ver bad. You hang round, make visitation to my cabin, and do nothing. How you get grub for the famine? Why have you not the dust? Other man's half plenty, but I work hard, Joy. Never day am I not on the trail or up the creek. Even now have I just come off. My dogs are yet tired. Other men have luck and find plenty of gold. But I, I have no luck. Ah, but when this man's with the wife, which is Indian, this man's McCormick, when him discovered the Klondike, you go not. Other men's go. Other men's now rich. You know I was prospecting over on the head reaches of the Tanana, "'Harrington protested, "'and knew nothing of the El Dorado or Bonanza "'until it was too late. "'That is different. "'Only you are what you call way off.' "'What?' "'Way off, in the, yes, in the dark. "'It is never too late. "'One var rich man is there "'on the creek which is El Dorado. "'This man's drive the stake, and him go away. "'No other man's know what of him become.' The man's, him which drive the stake, is never, no more. Sixty days no man's on that claim filed the paper. Then other man's, plenty other man's, what you call, jump that claim. Then they race, oh so quick, like the wind, to file the paper. Him be very rich, him get grub for famine. Harrington hid the major portion of his interest in that statement. "'When's the time up?' he asked. "'What claim is it?' "'So I speak Louis Savoy last night,' she continued, ignoring him. "'Him, I think, the win-air. "'Hang Louis Savoy!' "'So Louis Savoy speak in my cabin last night. "'Him say, Joy, I am strong mans. "'I have good dogs. "'I have long wind. "'I will be win-air. "'Then you will have me for husband?' And I say to him, I say, what'd you say? I say, if Louis Savoy is winner, then will he have me for wife. And if he don't win, then Louis Savoy, him will not be what you call the father of my children. And if I win, you winner? (laughs) Ha, ha, never. Exasperating as it was, Joy Molyneux's laughter was pretty to hear. Harrington did not mind it. He had long since been broken in. Besides, he was no exception. She had forced all her lovers to suffer in kind, and very enticing she was just then. Her lips parted, her color heightened by the sharp kiss of the frost, her eyes vibrant with the lure which is the greatest of all lures and which may be seen nowhere save in woman's eyes. Her sled dogs clustered about her in her suit masses, and the leader, Wolf Fang, "'laid his long snout softly in her lap. "'If I do win,' Harrington pressed. "'She looked from dog to lover and back again. "'What you say, Wolf Fang? "'If heem strong mans and file de paper, "'shall we his wife become? "'Eh, what you say?' "'Wolf Fang picked up his ears and growled at Harrington. "'It is ver cold,' She suddenly added with feminine irrelevance, rising to her feet and straightening out the team. Her lover looked on stolidly. She had kept him guessing from the first time they met, and patience had been joined unto his virtues. Hi, Wolfang! she cried, springing upon the sled as it leaped into sudden motion. Ai-ya! on! From the corner of his eye, Harrington watched her swinging down the trail to Forty Mile. Where the road forked and crossed the river to Fort Cudahy, she halted the dogs and turned about. "'Oh, Mr. Lazy-Mans!' she called back. Wolf Fang, him say yes if you win air!' But somehow, as such things will, it leaked out, and all Forty Mile— which had hitherto speculated on Joy Molyneux's choice between her two latest lovers, now hazarded bets and guesses as to which would win in the forthcoming race. The camp divided itself into two factions, and every effort was put forth in order that their respective favorites might be the first in at the finish. There was a scramble for the best dogs the country could afford, for dogs, and good ones, were essential, above all, to success and embed much to the victor. Besides the possession of a wife, the like of which had yet to be created, it stood for a mine worth a million at least. That fall, when news came down of McCormick's discovery on Bonanza, all the lower country, Circle City, and Forty Mile included, had stampeded up the Yukon, at least all save those who, like Jack Harrington and Louis Savoy, were away prospecting in the West. Moose pastures and creeks were staked indiscriminately and promiscuously, and incidentally, one of the unlikeliest of creeks, El Dorado. Olaf Nelson laid claim to 500 of its linear feet, duly posted his notice, and as duly, disappeared. At that time, the nearest recording office was in the police barracks at Fort Kadahi, just across the river from Forty Mile. But when it became brooded abroad that El Dorado Creek was a treasure house, It was quickly discovered that Olaf Nelson had failed to make the down Yukon trip to file upon his property. Men cast hungry eyes upon the ownerless claim, where they knew a thousand, thousand dollars waited, but shovel and sluice box. Yet they dared not touch it, for there was a law which permitted sixty days to lapse between the staking and the filing, during which time a claim was immune. The whole country knew of Olaf Nelson's disappearance, and scores of men made preparation for the jumping and for the consequent race to Fort Kadahi. But competition at 40 mile was limited. With the camp devoting its energies to the equipping either of Jack Harrington or Louis Savoy, no man was unwise enough to enter the contest single-handed. It was a stretch of a 100 miles to the recorder's office and it was planned that the two favorites should have four relays of dogs stationed along the trail. Naturally, the last relay was to be the crucial one, and for these 25 miles, their respective partisans strove to obtain the strongest possible animals. So bitter did the factions wax, and so high did they bid, that dogs brought stiffer prices than ever before in the annals of the country. And as it chanced, this scramble for dogs turned the public eye, still more searchingly upon Joy Moulinot. Not only was she the cause of it all, but she possessed the finest sled dog from Chilkoot to Bering Sea. As wheel or leader, Wolf Fang had no equal. The man whose sled he led down the last stretch was bound to win. There could be no doubt of it, but the community had an innate sense of the fitness of things and not once was Joy vexed by the overtures for his use. And the factions drew consolation from the fact that if one man did not profit by him, neither should the other. However, since man, in the individual or in the aggregate, has been so fashioned that he goes through life blissfully obtuse to the deeper subtleties of his womankind, so the men of Forty Mile fail to divine the inner deviltry of Joy Molineux. They confessed afterward that they had failed to appreciate this dark-eyed daughter of the Aurora, whose father had traded furs in the country before ever they dreamed of invading it, and who had herself first opened eyes on the scintillant northern lights. We'll return to A Daughter of the Aurora right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. Nay, accident of birth had not rendered her less the woman, nor had it limited her woman's understanding of men. They knew she played with them, but they did not know the wisdom of her play, its deepness, and its deftness. They failed to see more than the exposed card, so that to the very last forty mile was in a state of pleasant obfuscation, and it was not until she cast her final trump that it came to reckon up the score. Early in the week, the camp turned out to start Jack Harrington and Louis Savoy on their way. They had taken a shrewd margin of time, for it was their wish to arrive at Olap Nelson's claim, some days previous to the expiration of its immunity, that they might rest themselves and their dogs be fresh for the first relay. On the way up, they found the men of Dawson already stationing spare dog teams along the trail, and it was manifest that little expense had been spared in view of the millions at stake. A couple of days after the departure of their champions, 40-mile began sending up their relays, first to the 75 station, then to the 50, and at last to the 25. The teams for the last stretch were magnificent and so equally matched that the camp discussed their relative merits for a full hour at 50 below before they were permitted to pull out. At the last moment, Joy Molino dashed in among them on her sled. She drew Lon McFain, who had charge of Harrington's team, to one side and hardly had the first words left her lips when it was noticed that his lower jaw dropped with a celerity and emphasis suggestive of great things. He unhitched Wolf Fang from her sled, put him at the head of Harrington's team and mushed the string of animals into the Yukon Trail. Poor Louis Savoy, men said but Joy Molyneux flashed her black eyes defiantly and drove back to her father's cabin. Midnight drew near on Olaf Olson's claim. A few hundred fur-clad men had preferred 60 below and the jumping to the inducements of warm cabins and comfortable bunks. Several score of them had their notices prepared for posting and their dogs at hand. A bunch of Captain Constantine's mounted police had been ordered on duty that fair play might rule. The command had gone forth that no man should place a stake till the last second of the day had ticked itself into the past. In the Northland, such commands are equal to Jehovah's in the matter of potency. The dum-dum as rapid and effective as the thunderbolt. It was clear and cold. The aurora borealis painted palpitating color revels on the sky. Rosy waves of cold brilliancy swept across the zenith. While great coruscating bars of greenish white blotted out the stars, or a titan's hand reared mighty arches above the pole. And at this mighty display, the whoop dogs howled as had their ancestors of old time. A bearskin coated policeman stopped prominently to the fore, watch in hand. Men hurried among the dogs, rousing them to their feet, untangling their traces, straightening them out. The entries came to the mark, firmly gripping stakes and notices. They had gone over the boundaries of the claim so often that they could now have done it blindfolded. The policeman raised his hand, casting off their superfluous furs and blankets, and with a final cinching of belts, they came to attention. Time? Sixty pairs of hands unmitted, as many pairs of moccasins gripped hard upon the snow. Go! They shot across the wide expanse, round the four sides, sticking notices at every corner and down the middle where the two center stakes were to be planted. Then they sprang for the sleds on the frozen bed of the creek. An anarchy of sound and motion broke out. Sled collided with sled, and dog team fastened upon dog team with bristling manes and screaming fangs. The narrow creek was glutted with the struggling mass lashes and butts of dog whips were distributed impartially among men and brutes. And to make of a greater moment, each participant had a bunch of comrades intent on breaking him out of jam. But one by one, and by sheer strength, the sleds crept out and shot from sight in the darkness of the overhanging banks. Jack Harrington had anticipated this crush and waited by his sled until it untangled. Louis Savoy, aware of his rival's greater wisdom in the matter of dog driving, had followed his lead, and also waited. The route had passed beyond earshot when they took the trail, and it was not till they had traveled the ten miles or so down to Bonanza that they came upon it, speeding along in single file, but well bunched. There was little noise, and less chance of one passing another at that stage. The sleds, from runner to runner, measured sixteen inches, the trail eighteen but the trail, packed down fully a foot by traffic, was like a gutter. On either side spread the blanket of soft snow crystals. If a man turned into this in an endeavor to pass, his dogs would wallow perforce to their bellies and slow down to a snail's pace. So the men lay close to their leaping sleds and waited. No alteration in position occurred down the fifteen miles of Bonanza and Klondike to Dawson, where the Yukon was encountered. Here the first relays waited, but here, intent to kill their first teams if necessary, Harrington and Savoy had their fresh teams placed a couple of miles beyond those of the others. In the confusion of changing sleds, they passed full half the bunch. Perhaps thirty men were still leading them when they shot onto the broad breast of the Yukon. Here was the tug. When the river froze in the fall, a mile of open water had been left between two mighty jams. This had but recently crusted, the current being swift, and now it was as level, hard, and slippery as a dance floor. The instant they struck this glare ice, Harrington came to his knees, holding precariously on with one hand, his whip singing fiercely among his dogs, and fearsome abjurations hurling about their ears. The team spread out on the smooth surface, each straining to the uttermost. But few men in the north could lift their dogs as did Jack Harrington. At once he began to pull ahead, and Louis Savoy, taking the pace, hung on desperately, his leaders running even with the tail of his rival's sled. Midway on the glassy stretch, their relays shot out from the bank, but Harrington did not slacken. Watching his chance when the new sled swung in close, he leaped across, shouting as he did so and jumping up the pace of his fresh dogs. The other driver... "'Fell off somehow. "'Savoy did likewise with his relay, "'and the abandoned teams, "'swerving to right and left, "'collided with the others "'and piled the ice with confusion. "'Harrington cut out the pace. "'Savoy hung on. "'As they neared the end of the glare ice, "'they swept abreast of the leading sled. "'When they shot into the narrow trail "'between the soft snowbanks, "'they led the race, "'and Dawson, watching by the light of the aurora, Swore that it was neatly done. When the frost grows lusty at sixty below, men cannot long remain without fire or excessive exercise and live. So Harrington and Savoy now fell to the ancient custom of ride and run. Leaping from their sleds, tow thongs in hand, they ran behind till the blood resumed its wonted channels and expelled the frost, then back to the sleds till the heat again ebbed away. Thus, riding and running they covered the second and third relays several times on smooth ice savoy spurted his dogs and as often failed to gain past strung along for five miles in the rear the remainder of the race strove to overtake them but vainly for to louis savoy alone was the glory given of keeping jack harrington's killing pace as they swung into the 75 mile station lon mcfain dashed alongside Wolf Fang in the lead caught Harrington's eye and he knew that the race was his. No team in the north could pass him on those last twenty five miles and when Savoy saw Wolf Fang heading his rival's team he knew that he was out of the running and he cursed softly to himself in the way woman is most frequently cursed. But he still clung to the other smoking trail, gambling on chance to the last. As they turned along, the day breaking in the southeast, they marveled in joy and sorrow at that which Joy Molino had done. Forty Mile had early crawled out of its sleeping furs and congregated near the edge of the trail. From this point, it could view the up Yukon course to its first bend several miles away. Here it could also see across the river to the finish at Fort Kadahi, where the gold recorder nervously awaited. Joy Molino had taken her position several rods back from the trail, "'and under the circumstances the rest of Forty Mile "'forbore interposing itself, "'so the space was clear between her "'and the slender line of the course. "'Fires had been built, "'and around these men weeded dust and dogs, "'the long odds on Wolffang. "'Here they come!' shrilled an Indian boy "'from the top of a pine. "'Up the Yukon a black speck appeared against the snow, "'closely followed by a second. "'As these grew larger, more black specks manifested themselves, but at a goodly distance to the rear. Gradually they resolved themselves into dogs and sleds, and men lying flat upon them. "'Wolf Fang leads!' a lieutenant of police whispered to Joy. She smiled her interest back. Ten to one on Harrington!' cried a Birch Creek King Mountie, dragging out his sack. "'The Queen? Her pay you not much?' queried Joy. The lieutenant shook his head. "'You have some dust? Ah, how much?' she continued. He exposed his sack. She gauged it with a rapid eye. "'Maybe, say, two hundred, eh? Good. Now I give what you call the tip.' "'Cover the bet,' Joy smiled inscrutably. The lieutenant pondered. He glanced up the trail. The two men had risen to their knees and were lashing their dogs furiously, Harrington in the lead. Ten to one on Harrington, bawled the Birch Creek King, flourishing his sack in the lieutenant's face. Cobard the bet, Joy prompted. He obeyed, shrugging his shoulders in token that he yielded, not to the dictate of his reason, but to her charm. Joy nodded to reassure him. All noise ceased. Men paused in the placing of bets. Yawing and reeling and plunging, like luggers before the wind, the sled swept wildly upon them. Though he still kept his leader up to the tail of Harrington's sled, Louis Savoy's face was without hope. Harrington's mouth was set. He looked neither to the right nor to the left. His dogs were leaping in perfect rhythm, firm-footed, close to the trail, and Wolf Fang, head low and unseen, whining softly, was leading his comrades magnificently. Forty miles stood breathless, not a sound, save the roar of the runners and the voice of the whips. Then the clear voice of Joy Molyneux rose on the air. Aye-ya! Wolffang! Wolffang! Wolffang heard. He left the trail sharply, heading directly for his mistress. The team dashed after him, and the sled poised an instant on a single runner, then shot Harrington into the snow. Savoy was by like a flash. Harrington pulled to his feet and watched him skimming across the river to the gold recorders. He could not help hearing what was said. Ah, him do very well, Joy Molino was explaining to the lieutenant. Him what you call set the pace. Yes, him set the pace very well. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. It looks like Joy Molyneux had set up Harrington pretty well. And now she'll pick up her man, Louis Savoy, the claim, and 10 to 1 on all that betting. What a story, and what a surprise ending. Thank you so much for the great reviews you've been sending. We really appreciate your kind words and taking the time to send them. You are great fans. And we've had some great reviews at 1001 Classic Short Stories. The first from T3000Mad. Love it. I love this podcast. And Fantastic by Ray Lynn. This podcast saves my sanity during my long commute. It's engaging and enjoyable and even takes my mind off heavy traffic. The story selection is really great, too. It's a good mix of familiar favorites and many I haven't heard before. Thanks for broadening my literary horizons and for making my commute enjoyable. And this one from Bagpiper. Great short stories, good selection, and well-read. Thank you very much, you guys, and thank you, fans, for listening and for letting others know about 1001 Classic Short Stories. Well, that's it for today. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.